Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror. Um, as I always say, the lucky person who gets to be called New York Historical's president and CEO. And I am really thrilled to greet you all in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, some of you may already have seen an exhibition that's somewhat to the heart of this program this evening, Beauty's Legacy, Gilded Age Portraits in America. You will recognize a lot of names from Amsterdam or Dutch names in that show. And of course, if you haven't yet been through our major exhibition, the Armory Show at 100, Modern Art and Revolution, you must come back during regular museum hours to see it. It's a spectacular exhibition with more than 100 works from the original Armory Show that introduced New York and the United States to modern art. And of course, don't miss our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which you can find most Friday evenings right here in this auditorium. We have flyers outside that will give you an idea of what films we're showing and who the speakers are. Um, I hope that all of you are members of the New York Historical Society. If you're not, um, rush and become a member. We can help you do that on your way out this evening. Um, New York Historical Society's Society members play a critical role in, uh, in this institution on every level, and you also enjoy great benefits throughout our institution. Tonight's program, From Amsterdam to New Amsterdam, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support which enables us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful people in this auditorium this evening. Above all, I'd like to recognize and thank our uh, board chair, Pam Schaffler, for the great work that she does on our behalf. And I would also like to thank trustees Sidney Lapidus, Morris Offit, and Ernest Tollerson uh, for the great work that they also do on our behalf. Thanks so very much to all of you. Our program this evening will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll ask you to line up um, to my left and to my right in the aisles uh, behind standing microphones. We do that so that uh, the speaker on the stage can hear your questions and everyone else in the auditorium can hear your questions as well. Following the program, we do have a limited number of pre-signed books available for purchase in our museum store. And now, we are really thrilled to welcome Russell Shorto back to the New York Historical Society. I think um, the publication of Island at the Center of the World coincided maybe with my very first year as president here, and it was a wonderful celebratory occasion then and another one this evening. Um, Russell Shorto is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. He served as director of the John Adams Institute in Amsterdam from 2008 to 2013, an organization whose mission is to bring notable Americans, including writers, politicians, historians, and more, to the Netherlands to talk about their work and to provide audiences with a window into the United States. He's the best-selling author of The Island at the Center of the World, the epic story of Dutch Manhattan and the forgotten colony that shaped America. 
and most recently, the wonderful Amsterdam, a history of the world's most liberal city. Before we begin, I'd like to ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming Russell Shorto to the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you, Louise, for your uh, generous introduction. And thank you to the New York Historical Society for inviting me. Excuse me, I'm dropping. For inviting me and uh, Louise, uh, this is only, I think, the second time I've been in the new New York Historical Society, and I have to say I love what you've done with the place. Um, uh, and this is also, for me, the start of what uh, amounts to a national book tour. And uh, for those of you who don't follow publishing closely, uh, national book tours are not common uh, these days. So I want to take a moment to thank, first of all, my publisher and my editor, Bill Thomas, is here and um, a couple of other organizations that have collaborated, the Netherland America Foundation and uh, the Dutch consulates around the US who have, not surprisingly, but happily, um, seen that they have a vested interest in, in promoting a book about Amsterdam. Um, and I want to thank all of you, of course, for coming. You know, that when, you're, uh, when you are an author and you're spending all this time in your little uh, hovel, working on your, your project, and then finally you set it out afloat onto the seas, and, and you, have, you feel, have this vulnerable moment where you feel like, well, you know, I hope it doesn't just capsize and, and sink. Uh, so this is the start of, uh, for me, of the sort of public uh, um, uh, life of this book, and thank you all very much for being here and uh, helping me to feel that, uh, that uh, there's a, a wind, uh, wind in the sails. Okay, um, once upon a time, I was living in the East Village of New York, and uh, I, would, I lived around the corner from St. Mark's in the Bowery Church, and that was the nearest, the churchyard was the nearest open space to take my daughter, who was a toddler, to run around and play. And just to give some um, uh, perspective, she's now a freshman in college, so time passes. Um, and. Uh, so I would, if those of you who are familiar with the church know that the, the tombs of many of New York's early families are in the church and they're flat against the ground. Uh, one tomb, however, is in the, the foundation of the church and that's the tomb of Peter Stuyvesant. So while my daughter would run around and play, I uh, would read the tombs and uh, read Stuyvesant's um, and I, I've known, you know, over time you get to have some understanding of yourself as a writer, and I have learned that I tend to try to look at origins of things. And so I was interested, I, I, while there, I got interested in the idea of exploring New York's origins. I knew the way, <clears throat> I guess most people do, that New York was once New Amsterdam, and there was this guy named Peter Stuyvesant who was associated with it, and. Uh, that he had a wooden leg. I mean, there, there were a few things like that I knew, and not much beyond that. Um, and so, at that time, I just thought I would I would learn more, and I, I, I was just looking for something to read. And um, I contacted people. I, I was intrigued when friends who were historians of New York sort of threw up their hands and said, "I don't know, I don't know the Dutch period." And of course, my assumption was that that was because there wasn't much. The, the Dutch didn't leave many records behind. Uh, and so uh, then at some point somebody suggested that I talk to a man in Albany named Charles Gehring, who I don't think, Charlie, are you here tonight? I don't think he's here. I think he's, uh, I'll see him tomorrow. 
um, named Charles Gehring, who uh, started in 1974 translating and editing and publishing the archives of the Dutch colony of New Netherland, which in fact uh, consists of 12,000 pages of original uh, 17th century Dutch material. Um, so I, I contacted him. Uh, I got to, uh, he invited me to his annual seminar on the topic of New Netherland. And I went up to Albany for that, and I met about 100 uh, historians, a few archaeologists and others, who were focused on this topic. So since 1974, he'd been working on this. And by this time, this was in 2000, there had been a body of material that had formed uh, around him and, body, and a group of scholars around him who were um, giving a new perspective on this part, not just of New York's beginnings, but of American beginnings. And so after spending a certain amount of time with them and getting to know uh, Charlie and others better, I hit on the idea of writing a book that, was, uh, that would try to place this in a broader context, in the broader context of American colonial history. Um, so that book became The Island at the Center of the World, which came out in 2004. And the argument that I make in that book is that uh, New York became what it did thanks in part to what it was at the beginning, thanks in part to the fact that it was founded by the Dutch. And uh, of course, there are remnants of the Dutch presence throughout not just New York, but throughout the whole region of New Netherland, which con uh, cons uh, constituted all or parts of five uh, future states, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. And uh, the names are the most obvious things. Um, New Harlem became Harlem, and Brooklyn became Brooklyn, and Staten Island, which was named for the Staten General, the, the, the governing body of the Dutch Republic. Uh, Long Island, the Dutch named. Sand Hook became Sandy Hook. Rhode Island stayed pretty much the same. Uh, so the place names, a lot of place names we're familiar with. Last night I was giving a, a talk at a house in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, at the sort of between Thunderbilt and Flockables, <laughs> Vanderbilt and Flatbush Avenues, so it stays. Um, but the names are just uh, uh, just one indication. Uh, and I looked for you know just as a kind of a, because this kind of history you don't see, you know, since it's not uh, front and center in history books, you look for it elsewhere. And so I became intrigued by little indications of it, not just in New York's history, but in American history. So that, for example, coleslaw. Why is coleslaw ubiquitous in this country? I don't know. But in fact, it started in New Amsterdam. And coleslaw, even the word, that, that's Dutch for uh, cabbage salad. Um, why do we eat uh, cookies rather than biscuits? Because they made cookies, and cookies is the Dutch. It's still Dutch for little cake. Uh, and uh, they made them in New Amsterdam. The American Santa Claus comes from the Dutch Sinterklaas. Uh, my favorite is the, the word boss, which comes into the English language from the Dutch of New Amsterdam. And what I like about it is that it, as it eventually got copied into English, the, the meaning shifted because boss in the 17th century Dutch had a master-apprentice kind of relationship to it. And of course, in English, it took on a different a different power relationship, so that you were saying, well, you're my boss, you're not my master. Uh, so there were all these little indications of what this, uh, what, uh, of the presence of the Dutch in, uh, in this part of the world. But the big ones, those were all um, surface indications, but the big ones, I argued in the book, were two. 
the Dutch uh, planted a unusually, a uniquely multi-ethnic colony. In 1643, there was a Jesuit priest in New Amsterdam who reported hearing 18 languages being spoken. And at that time, there were probably only about 500 people living. And New Amsterdam, of course, was below Wall Street, so just the tiny uh, triangle of land at the far southern tip of the island. So you might say even before New York was New York, it was New York. I mean, we're still New Amsterdam. Um, and the other thing was this unusually, um, the, the Dutch had a, a unique approach to free trade, to doing business. And they were so good at it, so efficient, that the English, in their colonies in New England to the north and in Virginia to the south, would, uh, would ship their uh, goods home via New York Harbor, via uh, New Amsterdam, because the Dutch were uh, good at transshipping and their tariffs were low. So these two things, I mean, if you think about it, the, these two things, this um, mixed society and a free trading sensibility, are essentially a, a recipe for New York. And when the English took over in 1664, they basically kept it. They, they saw that that was working. Uh, some of the, the first mayors of English New York are Dutch. P the people stayed, by the way. This mixed community of people stayed. And so it remained, and it stayed that way in American history. Now, of course, uh, when the English uh, uh, took over, it didn't occur to anybody to stop and write the history of what had come before, which is how it, it gets uh, covered over. But this mixed society remains, and if you jump ahead in time, into the 19th century, when the great waves of people came from, emigrated from Europe to America. By and large, they made footfall in Manhattan. And they saw what was now this teeming population of people from different backgrounds, uh, speaking different languages and worshiping different faiths, and for the most part, not, not uh, killing one another, and all operating by what we would call upward mobility. And they saw this, this, this uh, unprecedented to them society, and they said, this is America. And of course, it wasn't America. It was, America it, it was New York. And it was New York because it had been New Amsterdam. But they took it with them. Those, of course, many stayed, and many moved westward. And they moved to Ohio. They moved to Illinois, all the way to California. And they brought this idea with them. And so in that way, this is the sort of thing that intrigues me as uh, someone who writes history. You're, all, you're trying to catch ideas, which is impossible. You can never catch an idea. Um, but it's, um, it's worth trying. Um, and so this, the, following these ideas that go, move from Europe to lower Manhattan and then it spread outward, that was one thing. That was what I was trying to accomplish in that first book. Uh, so then I moved to Amsterdam. And uh, shortly after arriving there, I had the idea that I would like to write a book about the city. Um, and uh, right alongside that came the thought that uh, all the things that I talked about in Island at the Center of the World came from a place. And you know, as I said before, as a writer, I try to look for origins. In a way, my Amsterdam book is kind of the prequel to the Island at the Center of the World. So what was this, where did these things come from, and, and how did they come to, to be associated with this uh, far northern uh, corner of Europe? So that was, the, that was what I was uh, interested in initially in the book. Now, to, to, start, to talk about that, I'm going to uh, jump back further in time and then start moving forward again. In Europe in the Middle Ages, uh, the, the standard society was operated by what, what is called the manorial system. 
so, and everybody has a picture of this in their mind. You've got a, uh, a nobleman who ideally lives in a castle and is, it controls lands, and there are a lot of serfs or peasants, people who work on these lands, and those people uh, pay rent to the nobleman in the form of uh, crops or labor, and in turn, he gives them protection, and he, uh, if there are disputes, he's the, he's the judge, so he is their, their overseer, and he, in turn, is beholden to the church and to, uh, and to a king. That's the, that, and you were, if, in this system, if you're born in this system, wherever you, were, wherever you are born in this system, your child is going to occupy the same position, and his or her ch children will as well. It's a fixed system. And it's, it's based on the land. In the, what is now the Netherlands, in that corner of Europe, it's essentially a vast river delta, and it's, of course, the Low Countries, and society there developed differently thanks in large part to the geography of the place. Uh, if you ever, uh, anyone who has traveled in the Netherlands uh, today, if you're traveling uh, between cities, whether by train or by car, typically you'll be up on a, the, the highway or the rails will be, uh, you, you'll look out and you'll see just flatness, of course, and um, that you, you, you might not even notice, but you're raised a little bit above that. Typically the road or the, the rail line is part of a dike. And if you look out on these fields, you'll see flat fields, lots of flat farmland, and you will see these little trenches, little channels cut between them. This is the whole country, practically, is uh, uh, divided up this way. These little trenches filled with water that meet up with larger trenches with water, and it's sometimes maybe only a few inches, the difference between the water level and the land level. And of course, the, the country is, most of the country is at or below or, or very close to uh, the sea level. And through this marvel of engineering, they managed to make it so that that level stays, uh, the water stays that much down. Um, so they've been doing this for a long time. And in the Middle Ages, uh, what happened was it was very if it, uh, a very difficult, inhospitable place to live. And so people banded together, and they made agreements that together they would do this backbreaking work to reclaim the land from the sea. And that may have meant actually reclaiming land that was underwater, or it may have meant uh, making land that uh, is sometimes flooded usable. And so they created what are called polders. They built dams and dikes and trenches, and they, they uh, became, got very good at doing this. But the interesting thing is once they did this, they created this land, and it didn't belong to a king, it didn't belong to a nobleman, it belonged to them. There's a famous Dutch saying, famous to the Dutch, uh, that um, God made the earth, but the Dutch made Holland. And this is what they mean. Um, and uh, so they divided, so what they did is they, the people who made this land together divided it up and uh, decided each one got a portion. And then they began buying and selling and renting the land from one another. So they developed a kind of proto-modern economy, a real estate-based economy at a time when the manorial system was holding sway elsewhere in Europe. So this then isn't just about land and it's not just about money because over a period of generations, this has this empowering effect. People start to see the future differently. They think that their, their children maybe will have a different kind of life. Uh, they, are, they become rich. Um, and so this then sets off this process of innovation. Uh, just to take a couple of um, Examples, uh, everyone in Northern Europe in the 1400s, 1500s um, 
fished for herring. Herring was uh, nutritious and reasonably plentiful, and all countries fished for it. The Dutch cornered the market on it, and they cornered the market on it by innovating, a series of innovations. One, uh, which was probably an accident, they discovered that if you, when you're processing the herring, if you leave a portion of the liver in with the, the processed uh, fish, it preserves it much longer. So what that means, and it also has the benefit that it tastes better. Um, and what that means is that you can fish longer, you can go further out to sea uh, and before you have to get the fish to market. But that required a different kind of ship. So the next innovation was the development of what is called a herring bus, which is essentially a factory that can plow through open waters. Uh, and, and it, so then this whole industry comes up around it where you have teams of people who all have different jobs in the processing of herring and in the packing of herring and you've got uh, uh, the, you've got the fishing vessels and then you've got the, the factory vessels and then you've got ships that are protecting them all because this, this becomes a very uh, valuable uh, enterprise. And so they develop this whole industry and then they, they start to innovate in other ways. They start to, they, they do that, they process and they pack the herring on these ships and they pack it in kegs and they stamp them Holland herring. So they're branding, I mean they're literally branding. Um, and they're doing that because they have got this whole quality control process that comes into being, and they want repeat customers. They want people to see that theirs is better. So they cornered the market in herring. Uh, and in doing that, then, as they become shippers, uh, they see other products available in, in ports that are cheap. Raw materials are cheap here, and they decide they'll figure out how to use them. So in Eastern European ports, they see, uh, they see uh, the raw materials for soap. And so then on the, along the canals of Amsterdam, 21 soap works spring up and they start uh, making soap for everyone. Then they hit on the idea of coloring their soap green, again for branding purposes, so that people, in, whether in Italy or England, where they're buying soap, they know that this green soap they associate with Amsterdam. So this series of uh, steps they take, innovating, all of these are in uh, what's, what uh, they call the, the, the heavy, the bulk trades, all of these innovations. The big trade, the, the lucrative trade, was uh, within the, the East Indies, in the Far East, which the Portuguese had control of. Um, at, the, at the end of the 1590s, the Dutch decide to make a go at this. In the city of Amsterdam, this mostly coalesces around the city of Amsterdam. They decide to have a run at the Portuguese trade uh, with the Far East. Um, they uh, developed then a new, an, again, innovating, a new kind of company. Companies had existed uh, for the supporting shipping enterprises, and what the way it worked was a group of people put their money together to spread around the risk, and they back a venture, they send the ships out, they bring the, the products back, and they divide it up, and the company dissolves. This new kind of company, they realized they needed a new kind of company because this was a vast undertaking, and, and so they made it a, pub, a very complex uh, public-private um, uh, enterprise, and the, the, the Dutch East India Company is, of course, what I'm talking about, um, which uh, it, it did so many remarkable things. It's hard to, I mean, just to, to give a few examples, it was the largest company in the history of the world to that point. Um, it, uh, it transformed the world by shipping plants and animals and insects from one place to another, setting off this cycle of invasive species that we're still, still dealing with. It exploited peoples on a scale that no one had ever uh, fathomed before. It didn't, they didn't just deal in spices, which is what you, we tend to think of. They, um, 
they, dealt, they became middlemen between different spice islands in what is now Indonesia. So they became, in much the same way that here, they became the middlemen between different Indian tribes, and they developed the wampum into a kind of uh, currency as a, way to, as a way to do that, to advance that. Um, but the biggest innovation, I think, that the, uh, the uh, Dutch East India Company made was in its structure. The, on, the, on the first page of its uh, subscription offer in 1602, it said that this company wasn't going to end when the next voyage, and when its first voyage ended, but rather would stay in business. And what that meant was if you bought a piece of it, you could keep that, and later, if you wanted, you can sell that piece of the company, presumably at a higher price. So this then becomes the beginning of the concept of shares of stock. And uh, if, you know, if you know Amsterdam at all, there's, if you come out of Central Station, there's this m mess of an area of buses and traffic and candy wrappers and just a mess of a place. And you would probably not even realize that you're standing on a bridge uh, before you kind of step into the city. Uh, this is called the New Bridge. It's been around for a long time. Uh, and, but the, the New Bridge was, before Central Station was there, that you had direct access to the harbor. And so the New Bridge was the, the transit point between the, all the ships in the harbor and the city. So it became the place where these shares of stock were traded. It was the first stock exchange. After a few years, they built, well, they realized this is going to last, so they, they better go inside. So they, they built a place. Uh, but what's, what's interesting and innovative about it uh, from, from my, my point of view is um, that what this did is it allowed individuals, including not only wealthy individuals, there were a lot of uh, ordinary people who bought the original shares of stock in the East India Company. It allowed these people to have a stake in the great financial affairs of their time. So all of this whole cycle that I'm talking about, going back to the, the Middle Ages and people dividing up the land, this individual empowerment, in the, the sub, I subtitled the book um, A History of the World's Most Liberal City, focusing on the word liberal, and I spent a good portion of the book kind of unpacking all the different meanings of liberal. Uh, there's economic liberalism, and there's social liberalism. There's liberal in the sense of permissive. So in this sense, uh, in the sense of giving individuals freedom, that's the, the broad sense that I have in mind. And in doing this, what, what this uh, company allows is it allows individuals in this city of Amsterdam to, uh, to have a stake in, in what this enterprise is doing. The Dutch East India Company then, as the, it, it rises to unprecedented heights, and the city of Amsterdam rises with it, and the Dutch provinces do. This is the golden age of the Netherlands. And now this whole cycle of uh, innovations, all focused on the individual that I'm talking about, uh, really come to flower. Uh, now I have to think of where to start. Art. Um, uh, this new, newly developing society so focused on the in individual is suddenly fascinated with art not simply as a way to represent religious and biblical subjects, but as a way to represent individuals, to represent people, suddenly people are interested in buying paintings about, of, of uh, a woman selling fish on the street, or a woman pouring milk into a bowl. Um, ordinary people and what they're doing is, is suddenly fascinating. Rembrandt became famous. He's famous to us because he is so, such a genius in so many different uh, genres. But at the time, he became famous when he moved from Leiden to Amsterdam because of his way with portraits. Portraits were a, suddenly a craze. And the, so people would, and these are 
very staid, very sober, well, not necessarily sober, but very um, <laughs> serious um, Calvinists, these people. And uh, they, and you look at their dour faces and everything, but they were, they lined up to have him paint their, their portraits, and of course a lot of other artists. But what I think distinguished him and set him apart was there were a lot of artists who were um, good at painting what you look like. But the difference seemed to be that Rembrandt kind of seemed to be able to paint who you were, like who you were inside. And the fact that these people were suddenly interested in that says a lot about them, about this turn that happened, that um, they're, they're, they're religious people, they're in some ways medieval still, uh, but they're suddenly very interested in, in who we are as individuals. So that you, these, these are people who are merchants and, and, and they, they are, are furniture makers and they are people who are of no consequence today to history, but they have Wikipedia pages and people line up to look at their pictures in the Hermitage Museum or in the Metropolitan Museum of Art or in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam because of this, because it's, they're so because he was so good at that and because this is that moment in time when people are suddenly, we're kind of looking at the beginnings of who we are as, <clears throat> as modern people. Uh, and so all of this comes, starts to come into being and starts to you know, roll together in, in what we call the Dutch Golden Age and especially in Amsterdam. Um, the, uh, the city itself, this, the physical construction of the city is a manifestation of this. Um, as the city was, it was rapidly um, growing at this time, and so they decided to build, uh, to extend it fivefold, and they did it by uh, wrapping this horseshoe ring of canals around the medieval center. And doing this, uh, you know, the canals, if you've ever, I mean, we think of the canals as charming and, and quaint, and, and, and they're all that. At the time, in the, in the, especially in the later, 1600s, visitors from other countries came trying to copy this, trying to figure out what is this that they're doing. And what they were doing was making a city that was for individual people, for their, with their comforts in mind, with their convenience in mind. Uh, so that these canals are kind of like arms that reach around the earth and grab all of its uh, uh, pr uh, products and bring them into this, this little country and this little city. Uh, so that a, a man in the 17th century who was a trader in spices, say, could conceivably ride with his shipment from the East Indies all the way to the eye, to the harbor of Amsterdam, transfer with them to a smaller vessel, ride right up the canal to his canal house where he lived with his family downstairs and the, the, he kept his uh, products upstairs. And you know, canal houses in Amsterdam, 17th century houses have what's called a hoist beam that sticks out of the top and there's a hook on the end of it. And that was for, with a rope and a pulley, you pulled your spices or whatever your products were up into the upper floors. So these houses then were uh, representatives of this whole thing. There's a, a, the writer, Witold Rybyshinsky, uh, wrote a wonderful little book called Home, A Short History of an Idea, in which he argues that the Dutch canal house of the 17th century was the first home, it was the first place where this, the concept of domesticity and home is an intimate private space that is meant for a man and a woman and their children. That all kind of comes together there. And he says that if you compare that with what had gone on in other urban areas, you have these um, you know, big complexes, like you think of uh, Paris, where you've got um, sort of block-long complexes, and you've got um, 
uh, uh, mixed families, multi-generational, uh, you know, all different kinds of uh, people living there and servants living there and others and ancillary people living in this space. And there's a courtyard in the center and a lot of coming and going. And contrast that with this, the Amsterdam Canal House, which is really a home. And so that gets back to why I think it's so quaint and so charming to us. It's kind of the first house to us. Uh, so in all these ways, these things developed in this society uh, that, 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 em, that empowered the individual or ex allowed the individual to express himself or herself. Um, it shows up in politics. Uh, they start to experiment with the idea of republicanism. Um, the, uh, and, and then, you know, and, 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 and it goes on, and this becomes a part of the history of Amsterdam for, well, to today, but um, it, it changes over time. And in the 20th century, it takes on other forms. In the 20th century, after World War II, I, I, World War II is another whole, uh, if somebody wants to ask a question about it, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it, but that's another uh, episode. After World War II, this whole history of innovation and, and what I'm calling liberalism, um, takes on a new uh, form when, uh, in the 1960s, they develop a movement that they call Provo. Uh, Provo was their counterculture movement. And uh, in the aftermath of, the four, of World War II and of the 50s, uh, people there who had this whole sort of heritage behind them, this whole way of thinking behind them, uh, decide that they want to protest consumerism, which is new, television advertising, which is new, um, the presence of American nuclear bombs in, on Dutch soil. Uh, you know, all of this they put together and they do their own form of protest and they set off their own, um, their own uh, a, a very different approach to, quote, liberalism. Uh, this then, I think, reaches kind of a climax with um, when, when uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono decide that they're going to have their bed in for peace at the Amsterdam Hilton. And what that did is um, it brought the whole world, I mean, they, you know, they, they said, come, uh, they, they told journalists, foreign journalists, come and we're going to be there for a week, come and, and uh, spend time with us. So you've got the, the, the international uh, for, um, force of journalists coming there into their bedroom and uh, at, at the same time experiencing Amsterdam and experiencing the society that is in this explosion of, of uh, happenings and protest movements, and that kind of cements this different kind of liberal reputation on Amsterdam. So I'm now sort of bringing things to more recent history and what people associate with the city. Um, and, but the interesting thing to me is they connect. The two things connect. It's still, uh, you know, you can, uh, liberal is, uh, you know, what, and, you know, I'm not talking in a conservative versus liberal sense here, but the, the term is, I think, even broadly, uh, Broadly speaking, the term is um, kind of value neutral. I mean, we can say va uh, uh, valuing the individual is a is a worthwhile thing, but you can you can misuse it, you can misapply it, you can be all in favor of uh, economic liberalism and giving uh, 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 reducing tariffs and giving companies free reign, and then you can see that you know, rapacious companies uh, wreak havoc. So, uh, and, and by the same token liberal in the sense of permissive, uh, you know, th there are people, and this is part of the debate in the Netherlands and in Amsterdam now, that they have liberalized um, with their, the sex and the drugs, and uh, now they're questioning what was the right, what was the right uh, level to, to, to where, where to place this barrier. When I uh, interviewed uh, Job Cohen, who was 
the mayor of Amsterdam from 2000 to 2010, uh, he said to me, in Amsterdam, craziness is a value. And you know, what he was expressing was this notion, what he said was they, what we try to do is we allow as much as is possible to allow. And then if there are problems, we start to inch back from it, rather than some places, they start by allowing very little, and then by people have to protest in order to get more. So that has been the, uh, the, the tendency. And you, know, you see, it's not apparent on the surface in Amsterdam, uh, in the Amsterdam of sort of the red light district and all of that, but there's a thread connecting that to Amsterdam going all the way back. And if I can take it all the way back to the 1530s, the 1530s, is the, in, the, it, during the Reformation, in the aftermath of Martin Luther, uh, when all of these uh, you know, Baptists and Lutherans, these different um, sects spring up in Europe, and of course the Catholic Church uh, outlaws them. And these people run, Amsterdam is a place where they run to, because already then there had been a kind of laxness, a liberalness in, in, uh, in the city, in, in the city government. Um, and period, and, and uh, repeatedly, when this happens, uh, people, cra the, the, the powers that be in Brussels, the Spanish court, uh, which was also the seat of, uh, of uh, church power, tells the city fathers that they have to crack down on this, that we, they can't allow the Quakers to quake, they can't allow Lutherans to do their services and so on. And um, the city finds ways of, they just pay lip service. They, they give them a little bit of punishment and make them go away. So in Amsterdam in the 1530s on the streets, you, you had people parading, people shaking, people do, expressing faith, religious faith in, in ways that was, to a lot of people, quite crazy. And it, so you know, what I'm trying to do is draw a parallel from the 1960s to the 1530s and say that this same thing has been at play for a long time. Uh, we would, we we can call it tolerance, meaning allowing freedom. Uh, the Dutch have a word, chadochen, and I often say that if you can understand chadochen, then you can understand Dutch culture. And it's worth uh, talking about for a minute because uh, tolerance in the Netherlands at that time, in New Netherland, uh, it was relatively tolerant, but it's a very restrictive thing. And it's not, uh, for the most part, a grand ideal. Chadochen um, is something like um, putting up with, and uh, it's uh, if you if you look at the coffee shops in Amsterdam today, uh, coffee shops are where you can go to buy marijuana. Marijuana is not legal in the Netherlands; it's not legal to buy or sell it. Um, but if you were to ask a policeman on the street, "Where can I buy some marijuana?" he'd say, "Well, there's a coffee shop right there." Um, <laughs> but this is the that, but that's see that's chadochen because. It is technically illegal, but it is officially tolerated. And so this is the essence of, uh, you know, in the 17th century in the Netherlands, uh, when uh, Catholicism was forbidden because the, the Calvinists had come in, uh, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't technically forbidden, but it was hard to, uh, hard to find a place to worship. The Dutch allowed it under the same principles of Chadochen, but the church had to be hidden. It couldn't look like a church from the outside. So there's one real uh, re remaining uh, hidden church in Amsterdam that you can tour. And it's just a plain building on the outside. And you walk in and you're in this grand Catholic church. So this was this a kind of similar way of getting at this same notion of, well, we'll allow it. And I think all of this gets back to these groups of people and, who, who form these polders, who form this, this land, reclaim this land from the sea, 
And the idea is you all work together. You find a way to work together. And so in governing or in deciding policy, what that means you do is you, um, you try to give everyone the feeling that they have won something. So um, I, it, I, I always uh, am able to surprise people by saying that I think the Dutch are actually very conservative people. Uh, there are a lot of very conservative people in the country. There are also a lot of very uh, liberal people now in, in that sense of the term. Um, and when these people all sit down at a table in, in Amsterdam and decides and, and say, well, what are we going to do about drug policy? Some of them say, we, want, we believe everyone should be allowed to smoke marijuana. They should be allowed to do what they want. And others say, absolutely not. So you end up with a situation where they say, OK, here's what we'll do. You can sell marijuana. It's not legal, but you can do it, provided you do it in a place. Like if you, cha if you change the name coffee shop to a marijuana shop, the policeman would go and arrest the, the, the owners. So this is, this is the, the back and forth trade-off that, that they do. This is their, the kind of logic that's involved in it. Um, and it goes all the way back to the, uh, to the polder, to the, this creation of this kind of society. Another thing I think is really interesting about this kind of society as it formed was you had these people um, as a group just making this decision to reclaim land from the sea. And as a result of that, they uh, parcel it out and uh, they become individuals. They're landowners, and this empowers them and all. So, but, but the interesting thing is they stay, they realize that their individualism is tied to this collective activity. So it was only because together they kind of gave up some authority to this council, this water council, um, that allowed them to, to have their own land, to begin to buy and sell, to begin to become rich. So this is a thing that I think you know, the US has kind of lost sight of. And the, the, the Dutch are one example of a society where they keep this in mind. They keep the notion, the balance between the individual and the society uh, in, in mind, even to, to the point where today the coalition government in the Netherlands is comprised of the economic liberals, sort of the economic Republicans, you might say, and the social Democrats. So it's these two, uh, you know, what here would be the parties that would be at each other's throats are governing together. So I think this is a, an, an interesting, uh, 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 para, uh, an interesting uh, uh, way to look at uh, um, what's going on in the U.S. now. Um, so this, if this had happened, if this society had developed this way and, and hadn't affected the rest of the world, well, that would be interesting, but not so much. Uh, in fact, uh, the 17th century uh, Netherlands, as it rose, as its empire rose, um, all of these things started to get picked up by other places. Um, art, for example. Art was the obvious uh, uh, um, uh, way of transmitting this new, this new sensibility. Uh, Dutch artists, with it, like Rembrandt and Vermeer, these kinds of artists, their work uh, got copied elsewhere in Europe, and that, be, that uh, this kind of secular art of the uh, ordinary person became commonplace. Um, the, 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 maybe the, the single uh, most um, important person in uh, spreading this, this kernel of ideas associated with what I'm calling liberal was uh, Spinoza, the philosopher who uh, was born and raised uh, a Jew in Amsterdam's Jewish quarter, and then was famously excommunicated from the synagogue. Uh, and he grew up at a time uh, when you, 
when all of this was happening, he, and he saw he was a trader. He was a trader in the new stock exchange he, uh, because he, was, he worked in his family business. So he was a, a, part, a participant in the economic, this new kind of economic life of the city. He took in all of it. He took in this new approach to politics. He, he put it all together, and, and in his philosophy, he says, essentially, uh, if individuals matter, then the only form of government that's legitimate is one in which every individual has equal say. Uh, he, he uh, after his death, his work then was banned everywhere in Europe, but it spread. And over the next 100, uh, 150 years, it became kind of an undercurrent in, in the Enlightenment. John Locke uh, came, was an Englishman who never published until he came to Amsterdam. And he uh, then fell in with the remonstrant, that is to say liberal uh, uh, preachers uh, there was uh, a struggle between the sort of orthodox and the liberal uh, theologians. He fell in with them, and their um, big issue was tolerance, and, and as an ideal, uh, uh, as an ideal. And uh, so, after spending time with them, he began to publish there, and he wrote a, a letter concerning toleration, which is one of the foundations of the uh, Enlightenment. Um, and he wrote it to uh, a man named Van Limburg, one of these Dutch uh, colleagues of his. So through, uh, I'm trying to sketch some of the ways by which this, uh, this kernel of ideas spread outward. The British uh, Empire, uh, historian uh, Lisa Jardine a few years ago wrote a book called Going Dutch, in which she essentially argued that the British Enlightenment, the British Empire was kind of built on this Dutch foundation because the British Empire started to take off a bit later than the Dutch did, and there was this constant borrowing between back and forth, but mostly, she says, it was the English borrowing from the Dutch, and you see those effects in everything from clock making to porcelain to garden design to, to government, and that comes to a climax with uh, with, uh, in 1688, with, uh, with uh, a, a marvelous case of spin-doctoring the English called the Glorious Revolution. It was actually a, uh, uh, a takeover, an invasion of England by the Dutch uh, Stadtholder, Willem, who became King William of England. So that sort of climaxes this whole period of, of, uh, in which this, these forces spread outward. And of course, now to come back to New Netherland, uh, as, I, as I started, um, when this society founded a colony in the New World with its capital on Manhattan Island, uh, all of these things came along. This mixed society, this way, this chedochen, this kind of tolerance that, that it wasn't necessarily a grand thing, but it was a way that sort of allowed things to happen um, between people, between different kinds of people, and this kind of uh, this new approach to trade. All of that came along and is, uh, is part of what powered this place, what powered uh, Manhattan, so that when the, as I say, when the uh, English took over, they saw it was a going concern, and, uh, and they kept it. They kept these features in place. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll just end by saying, I think, you know, th there are a couple of things that unite these uh, ideas. Um, if I had to uh, 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 summarize them very briefly, I would say that the most recent book, Amsterdam, uh, not in a, in a political sense, but uh, the, the thing, the lesson from it, from the history of this city, is that we are all liberals. And, uh, the, and that the, uh, uh, of the earlier book, I think, to me, the most important lesson is that um, uh, even after 9-11 and 
the banking crisis and all the other, and, and Hurricane Sandy, uh, this is still what some of us think of as the island at the center of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take questions, and I have been instructed to remind you that there are microphones uh, on both, both aisles. Yes, sir. I think it's appropriate that Boston Red Sox starting third baseman is a Dutch-speaking uh, young man. His name is Xander Bogarts from Aruba. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the last time I was in Amsterdam, I, uh, I always ask what the graffiti says. And um, I was told that, that a lot of the graffiti is rather nasty graffiti um, dealing with the Arabs who have moved in to the Netherlands. And I wondered whether that was an aberration or whether there is some change in their liberal attitudes. Um, f first of all, when I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on an idea, liberal, which I associate with a place. And I think there are not so many places, not so many cities with which you can find an idea to attach it so nicely. Uh, that is not to say that the, the opposite is not the case there. Uh, the city is full of people, and people are all different kinds of things, just as they are in any other city. Um, but what you're getting at more broadly is the whole recent history of what's going on in Europe with immigration, and uh, in the Netherlands, the rise of this politician, Geert Wilders, who, uh, has, uh, who uh, rose to prominence um, in large part because he is able to exploit, I think, um, uh, people's fears about globalization. You know, you live in a Dutch village where everybody has been Dutch and had blonde hair, and suddenly people are coming in from elsewhere and they have better jobs than you. And you know, so there's, yeah, I mean, they have, I think this is an area, before I was talking about something that I think you know, the US could be mindful of, that the Dutch do pretty well. This is an area where the Dutch and other Europeans, uh, where the US has one up on them. That is to say, we've been in immigrant culture for a long time, uh, and we have our problems, and we've had you know, our uh, uh, tremendous problems in the past, but uh, I think there are a lot of Europeans who have a hard time uh, thinking of Dutch people as anything but someone whose father and grandfather and so on was Dutch, or for that matter, French or Germans. So that's what they're struggling with, and uh, you know, it will continue to be the case, and I, I probably, within a generation, uh, it will change. I, I once uh, was talking with uh, Franz Timmermans, who's now the foreign minister of the Netherlands, and suggested to him, because he's very passionate about these issues, and I said, well, you know, it seems to me the country should, because what it has that other places in Europe don't have is uh, this, what I was talking about, in the 17th century, it was the melting pot of Europe. And they can sort of use that, they can promote themselves that way to help, you know, uh, uh, overcome these issues. I don't know that uh, they're gonna do it, but I, I thought it was a good idea. Yes, sir. My, my name is Jim Pasinich, and I'm a docent here. The Dutch occupied New Amsterdam for 40 years, the English for 100 years. Uh, the English has a common heritage with most of the United States, and yet, based on your book, Island in the Center of the World, it seems to me that New York is much more a Dutch city than it is an English city. Is that correct? No, well, I would say that it's a, you know, what one thing the Dutch brought here was this mixed population, and that stayed. And even in the 16, you know, that, that it, the, turno the, the turnover was 1664, then there was a period in 1663 when the Dutch briefly took it back, or 1673. Um, 
but in the 1680s and 1690s, then those, the different groups of people in this part of uh, the colonies, peop other people started coming from, you know, from their communities. So those, those different ethnic communities built up, and it stayed that way. So that's what I mean by you know, this notion of tolerance and what that brought. That brought this mixed society that got even bigger and more mixed, and this notion of free trade. So if you call that Dutch, then I would say, yeah, but if you say you know, it has to be the Dutch language, I mean, I think that's, what, that's where it gets. In the past, it was easy to kind of dismiss the Dutch influence because you would say, well, we're not speaking Dutch now. You know? Never mind the fact that uh, people were still speaking Dutch in the Hudson Valley uh, until the last century. So, Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Most of the examples that you've given are from the 1600s and the 1500s and to some extent from the 20th century. Could you talk about what happened to Amsterdam in the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, when we, when we think of liberalism from that period, it's from Britain, it's from London, sure. it's, from, it's from Edinburgh, not from Amsterdam. Yeah, Amsterdam became, so the, the Dutch Golden Age was, a, you know, the 17th century, it's just, I think 1602 when the, Via, when the East India Company's founded, to 1672 when uh, uh, a series of crises happen, political and uh, uh, they're invaded on two fronts, the government collapses, the, they uh, open up the sluices to, to flood the land to try to stop invading armies and what, you know, you just have a country that's a flooded disaster. And they never recovered from it. The country never, you know, recovered to the, they, they were the center of the world. They were the most powerful nation in the world for that brief period of time. Um, so it, you know, these, I, that's why I say that, you know, these ideas, what I'm trying to chase ideas, they spread to other places. However, the, I mean, they stayed there, but they didn't have the effect. I mean, in some ways they did, because Amsterdam in the 1700s, still, uh, one of my favorite statistics is the fact that about the 17th century, Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands produced uh, one half of all the books published in the world in the 17th century. And Amsterdam produced a little more than half of that. So about a third of the books published in the world in the 17th century were published in this city. So this is another of these il illustrations of what kind of, what this, what this meant, this kind of society. But, and that stayed. The, the publishing industry stayed. So even though the, the country sank, the city was no longer at the forefront, it stayed at the forefront of publishing. And people from elsewhere, you know, when there was a civil war going on, people from both sides in that country had their, their, their tracts published in Amsterdam. So, and it became, therefore, because of that, intellectuals came. So it became, it was still important in this sense that I'm talking about, but as kind of a, a vehicle or a medium. Um, since reading your first book, I've been fascinated with the idea of how the Dutch ideas were cemented here. Mm -hmm. And um, I kept thinking that perhaps it was through corporate law in that really the Dutch colonists were living, living under a corporate rather than a church law or, or a crown law. And that when um, the English took over, they agreed to extend many aspects of that corporate, what we would call today corporate law. And corporate law is not particularly, it's very reflective of the Dutch. It's not particularly reflective of race or religion. Mm -hmm. It's just reflective of the profit agreement. And what do you think of that? <laughs> yeah, um, I think, well, the Dutch, had the Roman Dutch law, as it was called, was a different, a different approach to law. The British really brought there, that's something that they brought here. However, they brought it, they superimposed it onto 
this underlying structure. What the, the Dutch um, in 1653, this, they, they, they had uh, this struggle climax between the colonists and, and the West India Company. And uh, they, in, the, gov the Dutch government granted New Amsterdam a charter as a Dutch city. So it actually became a Dutch city. You know, all these Amster Amsterdam and Rotterdam and all those cities. And there was another one here. Um, so that had this underlying, this effect of kind of creating this underlying structure, I think. And that allowed some of these features which had to do with the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the way of doing business and, and interacting. But, in, but the English, as I understand it, they, very quickly, as they did elsewhere when they went, they brought their system of laws. And so that was really, I think, a, a, different, uh, a different entity. But, it, but as a follow-up to that uh, last mm -hmm. question, in an island in the center of the world, you make much of Adrian Vanderdonk mm -hmm. actually challenging Stuyvesant successfully mm -hmm. and the Flushing Remonstrance. Mm -hmm. Does that have a lasting impact vis-a-vis -vis the legal system that admittedly is English? Yeah, uh, well, that's, English? A, yeah that's a good point. They, because they, they took certain, the English took certain, you know, the, when, they, when the uh, Dutch gave the colony, they signed what uh, is called, uh, kind of erroneously, the Articles of Capitulation. But there were certain terms that they, that they agreed to. And the English, by and large, kept those. So that is a layer, in and, and what you're pointing to is one of these things. It's a layer in which uh, the people in this colony had uh, greater rights and freedoms, which they, which they were used to and which extend all the way back to the Dutch Middle Ages. Um, in, the, in, in these uh, communities, they were they, the Dutch in the Middle Ages were much more of a, a city-dwelling people, and they developed these these uh, principles. And so that is still reflected in this uh, treaty that they signed with the English, and that and the English abide by that. So that that so then, New York, when it becomes New York, uh, remains distinct. People are more free, in a, in a word, than they were in Boston. Thank you all very much.